One of the main images used in explaining the Christian message um, is the image of blood. So much so that some early Roman uh, uh, historians described Christians as cannibalistic, incestuous, donkey-worshipping magicians who practice dangerous superstitions. Uh, it must have seemed weird to them to hear about this new cult that had emerged, break away from Judaism, that talked about drinking blood. It must be a little strange for people completely new to the faith as well today to come into a church and hear all this talk about blood. Especially in the 19th century, if you, um, if you look at some of the songs, the hymns from the 19th century, which I like to do, um, as does Paul in our band, all the lyrics from our band come from the late 19th century, most of them, mid, mid to late 19th century. There's this almost morbid fascination with blood language. Um, no, 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 not morbid. It was, I guess it was inspirational back then, but it seems a bit weird if you look at it. One of the first goes I had at rewriting an old hymn um, sounds like it came straight out of you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It, it opens with this verse. Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You know, so blood evokes all this kind of gruesome imagery. Uh, the, the idea of being soaked in the, in the blood of Emmanuel, of human, of, of, of a human, of a human blood. I mean, it's full on. But in the Bible, blood is used a whole lot of different ways. It's, it's used to um, talk about human life and also human death. Um, blood is about guilt. If your hands are full of blood, you're uh, guilty of murder. It says in Isaiah 1 verse 15. The blood of the slain people cry out to God and demand justice. Uh, blood is about impurity. It occurs where there's a rupture in the fabric of life. Think about the famous story of the plagues and the Nile turning to red, to blood red. You know, um, points to a hemorrhaging universe and causes fear amongst the people. Joel, the prophet Joel, warns about the moon turning to blood on the day of the Lord. But perhaps the most important image of blood in the Bible is that of sacrifice. And we're going to see from Hebrews 9 that this image is strong in Judaism and then it goes on to be strong in Christianity too. And it's going to contrast the bloodshed in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, with the bloodshed in the New Testament or the New Covenant is the language of this passage. The bloodshed in Christian worship compared to the bloodshed in Jewish worship. And we will see that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And if you are plunged beneath that flood, you will lose all your guilty stains. And let me just say that, sure, Hebrews has talked about some pretty wild ideas, especially you might think back to the discussion about the ancient king priest Melchizedek and think, that is a bit out there, do I really need to focus on this? But the ideas that we're going to examine today, while they might still seem out there, they're actually quite central. This is right at the heart of the Christian message, what we're talking about this morning, the foundational even though it might seem a little bit foreign or completely foreign to you. Stick with it. So the first idea in the passage is that the old covenant, the old way of worshipping um, that was given to Jews by God, given to Moses first, 
That way of worship, worshipping was temporary. The old covenant was temporary. And what the passage does, it starts by focusing on the venue for the worship and also the method of the worship. It starts by looking at the actual tent, the tabernacle. Now, we are going to get into some detail here, even though the passage says we don't have time to look at detail. We actually will have a look at a bit of detail. Um, and I hope, just stick with me, because it's important. Um, people could worship God in the Old Covenant, but the sanctuary they worshipped in was material, it was physical. Actually, it was literally made of material. It was like fabric, you know, a tent in the desert. And this tent was really quite flimsy, you know, poles and tent pegs. And it was also spiritually flimsy as well, spiritually temporary. The other day in the park, at the end of our street, I was down there with the kids, and they noticed there was a, like a three-man tent pitched on the side of the park. And when the kids worked out, it was probably you know, a homeless person who was slept there the night before. But when you look at that, you don't think, oh, that's someone's home, a permanent home, do you? You think they're probably going to be gone tomorrow. And when we're looking at the tabernacle, you can look at a photo photo of a copy of it (laughs) that somebody's done. Um, That's kind of what we're we're talking about from the cover of the book. The sanctuary that's set up in the Old Covenant in the time of Moses uh, was temporary in the way it was furnished and in the sacrificial arrangements that were set up there. Eventually, this tent was um, replaced by a, a temple uh, in the time of Solomon, and then another temple because that temple got knocked down. And when we're, when we're, if we're thinking about that as well, we just think of that as temporary as well. That the, the temple that's eventually built is just a, kind of a, a bigger, grander version of the, of the tabernacle, but all of the religion under that kind of system is what's going to be described here. But for the sake of simplicity, the writer of the, to the Hebrews just focuses on the tent, so what did the tent look like? This is how the tent was set up. Uh, the tent had a big fence around it, um, maybe slightly bigger than this room, the, the fence area, that is, um, and that you can see on the front of the, the booklet. And then inside that there was an actual tent, and inside the tent was like a, another room, almost like another tent inside the, the, the bigger tent. Um, the, 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 the bigger tent is called um, the holy place, or the first tent, and then the, the smaller tent inside that tent was called the Holy of Holies, or the second tent, sometimes um, the uh, passage calls it, the inner compartment. And there's a whole lot of furniture in, the, in, the, in, these, in this tent. Um, there's a golden lampstand with three branches either side, and uh, each um, branch supported a flower-shaped lamp holder and it was positioned on the south side of the tent. Um, And then there was a table on the north side of the outer tent, or the the holy place. And the table is made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, about 90 centimetres long. It's probably smaller than that table. 45 centimetres wide, 69 centimetres high. We're talking little here. It had golden plates, spoons, flagons, and bowls on it. There was a thing called a show bread, which was, its job was to show the bread, so it's easy to remember. And it was on the north side. Yet they put 12 cakes of freshly baked bread on it on the Sabbath day. The priests did that. And, and the, the, the priests uh, 
replace them each Sabbath and ate the old, um, the old cakes. That was their special privilege. There was a curtain hung on the west end of the holy place made of embroidered linen. And this is called the second curtain and led into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter through that curtain into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Inside the inner tent, if you were to get in there, which only you could do if you were the high priest, there was a golden incense altar and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant holding um, the Ten Commandments on stone. And we think there might have been a few other things in there for a while because it mentions it in the Bible. But eventually, just so you know, um, the Ark of the Covenant does go missing. If you read through the Old Testament, it seems like it goes missing when the, when the temple, the first temple was ransacked. And, and when they rebuild the second temple, there's no Ark of the Covenant anymore. So even the Ark of the Covenant, the precious Ark of the Covenant, is a temporary thing. But it's symbolic of the presence of God. And on the lid of the ark, there was a special lid uh, called the mercy seat. And that was the place of atonement. That's where um, we're to think of that being like an earthly sketch of God's throne. That's that mercy seat. On the day of of atonement, the blood, both of the bullock, was offered to make make atonement for for the high priest and his family. And then there was a goat that was also sacrificed and blood poured on the mercy seat for the whole nation. And the incense sort of smoke, you know, filled the tent with with smoke and God's presence was there. So it's all very, you know, um, sensory and experiential and graphic. Blood, smoke, all kinds of things going on. And then there's the cherubim of glory, uh, two gold figures, um, uh, angelic creatures which overshadowed the mercy seat sort of went above it and it was just um, indicating God's presence so there's lots of detail here and you know you've probably forgotten most of it and you can sort of see a rough idea all of that last detail is just that little bit at the end of the tent there okay this is came from God's instructions to Moses and this tent was carried around the whole thing was carried around in the desert for 40 years by the Israelites, and it was their way of worshipping God through the priestly system. Now, he could have gone on the writer to the Hebrews and explained more details, but he doesn't. But what he does do is he starts to unpack the ritual and starts to talk about the temporary rituals. See, it wasn't just the venue that's temporary. It was the method of worship. Verse 6 shows that the outer tent was always being used. The priests came in every day to trim the lamps of the candlesticks, um, to, to, to burn incense on the incense altar, and each week they put the fresh loaves on the showbread. Any member of the priesthood could do this, but only the high priest could enter the second tent, it says, of the Holy of Holies, and he could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the conditions of his entering it were strictly prescribed. On this day, he took off his violet robe, put on a white robe, and he went into the Holy of Holies twice. On the first entry, he went in with the blood of the bullock, which had been sacrificed as a sin offering for himself. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and then the second time, he would come in after slaughtering the goat. And then there was a second goat, actually. The second goat was there 
and he'd pray over that second goat um, and almost like curse the goat with all the sins of the people and then the goat would be sent off in the desert. That's where we get the idea of scapegoat from. Scapegoat's important, but the writer of the Hebrews doesn't focus on that. And he makes three points about all of this in verse 7. He says, Except on this annual occasion, the way into the throne of God was barred for all Israelites, even for the high priest himself. And secondly, when the high priest did receive permission to enter, his entry was safeguarded by sacrificial blood. That was the only way he could get in. Thirdly, this sacrificial blood only worked for that occasion. So each year when he went back, the high priest went back, had to do it all over again. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on in saying verse 8, in, in all this detail, that the Holy Spirit is teaching us a lesson about the old covenant. And the lesson is there is no direct access to God under the old covenant. Only the whole high priest can get into the Holy of Holies through the inner veil, after a sacrifice, nobody else can have that kind of access. It's very difficult, messy. The access that you and I can have today, by uh, access to God, that is, was not granted until Christ came to accomplish his new covenant, which is what all this chapter is about. Now, the, the really effective barrier to a person's free access to God, the problem that they had in the old covenant was that what we really needed, what people really needed was a, a conscious transformation. But what they got was an outward transformation. It's only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and offer him acceptable service and worship. The sacrificial blood of bulls and goats was useless in this regard. Animal sacrifice and other material rituals that the priests performed only ceremonially, ceremonially and symbolically, removed the pollution of sin. It's a bit of the... What, what the Israelites had was, I think, you could call the Lady Macbeth problem. You know, she famously said, out damn spot, because, you know, her husband had killed the king. And she was feeling internally torn up. Her guilty conscience was eating away at her. She needed her conscience to be clean, and she couldn't get it. And she says, hell is murky. Uh, she feels like she's in hell. She couldn't face God. She couldn't face the people. She was having a spiritual crisis. And in the same way, the Israelites, while they were doing the Old Covenant, essentially still had a spiritual crisis on their hand because the bloodshed only dealt with the sin in a temporary surface kind of way. They were still not made completely righteous. The temporary tent of worship, worship combined with a temporary form of religious practice resulted in temporary forgiveness. Okay, now let's contrast that with the new covenant, which is eternal. The focus of this chapter is not on the temporary worship, it's on actually the new eternal worship. Look at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. Since Christ has come, the world has experienced a reformation of religion. What used to be the good things to come have now come. Now Jesus has come, and in him the shadows or the sketches of worship have given way to the reality. Jesus' appearance is properly announced with a trumpet flourish. 
He enters the presence of God and the whole um, cosmic universe praises him. It's very different, isn't it, to the way the high priest enters when there's this killing us. You know, and everyone's kind of covered in blood and ash. Quite a different thing. When Jesus enters the, his sanctuary, we celebrate the ascension of our priest king. Now Jesus, our priest king, ministers in the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which the tent made by Moses was only a copy. Jesus has entered this greater and more perfect tent, but this tent is not made of earthly materials. It has no tent pegs or ropes. Jesus had talks about this himself a few times. Mark 14, 58, he says, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another but not made with hands. Stephen, um, the, the, the first martyr, said in his famous sermon before he was stoned to death, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. Jesus enters into the great sanctuary of heaven. The former Levitical priests um, needed the sacrifice of animals to enter. The high priest could only enter the high Holy of Holies through the sacrifice of the bull and the goat. Uh, but, but Jesus enters by his own blood. And because of this, he obtains eternal forgiveness. When Jesus offered his life up on the cross to God as a sacrifice for the people's sins, he accomplished in reality what Moses or Aaron, the first priest, could only do in a sketch. The Levitical priests had to go annually. They had to make sacrifices over and over again. The high priest had to go back each year to the Holy of Holies, make a sacrifice and go in. And then he'd come in, make a sacrifice the next year and go in. And then the next year he'd make another sacrifice and go in. And this went on for 1,500 years, over and over again. But Christ entered the heavenly sanctuary by his blood once because the salvation that he achieved for the people was perfect in nature and eternal in effect. And as we said earlier, what needed to be dealt with was the Lady Macbeth problem, the guilty conscience. This was not just about external sort of symbolism. And that's what he achieved. What Christ achieved is not merely symbolical. The writer of Hebrews makes this big point. He says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, his own eternal being, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. So Christ's sacrifice is perfect. You might think sometimes that when you look at Easter time at the cross and Jesus dying on a Roman cross, it seems, to, seems so, it's such a strange thing for Christians to base their faith on. But in the context of all of this that we've just been talking about, it's not strange. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a context. Christ's sacrifice was perfect. The animals that were sacrificed had to be without blemish, no physical defects. But Jesus had plenty of physical defects. In fact, we know that he wasn't much to look at, but he was spiritually perfect. <coughs> he had no sin. Uh, the prophet Isaiah um, foresaw um, 
the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord. And he, and he said, he had no violence. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was morally pure. There was no corruption in him. And this was essential to his sacrifice. It was the ultimate response to God's requirements in relation to sin. It was the final spiritual response to God's necessities. His sacrifice was rational. It was voluntary. It was intelligent. It was loving. He had to die because he looked at you and he thought, I want to provide a way of salvation. And he knew that his perfect death could achieve that. And so it says in verse 15, for this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. They will receive an eternal inheritance when the one who made the will eventually dies. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living, it says in verse 17b. One of the key points of this new covenant is that the new covenant is like like a, a last will and testament in which Property is bequeathed by the owner to various other persons on the understanding that they have no title to it until he dies. There has to be a shedding of blood for all this to take place. It says that in verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. (coughs) And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You might think, does blood really need to be shed? Um, Some people have trouble with this and they think, is this a gruesome God? And some religious people, you know, there's been uh, rabbis that have tried to suggest that actually blood doesn't need to be shed anymore. Um, What they say is, all that matters is just to say that you're sorry. Uh, Rabbi Tovia Singer, he argued that animal sacrifice was unnecessary. He said, the prophets loudly declared to the Jewish people that the contrite prayer is all you need. The contrite prayer of a pertinent sinner. It replaces the sacrificial system. Could the Jews have just said sorry in being forgiven? He assumes that since, this rabbi assumes that since Israel no longer had its temple, um, he was talking about now, prayer and repentance would now do. He cites Hosea to prove that the sacrificial system had been replaced wrongly. Uh, Hosea says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Singer is uh, is correct in pointing out that um, um, this is right. What we need to be able to do is... um, Replace words with sacrifice, but this is only in a context when when this sac- the, the sacrificial system is fulfilled, and this is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus. It wasn't a matter of blood sacrifices being unnecessary, but rather being fulfilled. So the culmin- we're getting to the end now, and the culmination of this all of this is found in verse twenty-eight. It says so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thanks. This is describing what theologians call the atonement. Christ died in your place. He is your substitute. He received the punishment you deserved so that you could be saved. 
Uh, this is very important. The Melbourne theologian Leon Morris is dead now. He died a few, about a decade ago. He put um, the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus for your sins, he put that back on the table for the church. Believe it or not, um, 50 or 100 years ago, it was not talked about as much as it's talked about these days in the church. And he said this, to put it bluntly and plainly, if Christ is not my substitute, I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him, if he did not take them upon himself, then surely they remain with me. If he did not deal with my sins, I must face their consequences. If my penalty was not borne by him, it still hangs over me. There is no other possibility. Let me finish with this story. In his book um, called Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells this story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. And the doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery was a transformation from someone who had previously conquered the disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary? The doctor asked. Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. And then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary was pale and thin. Johnny, robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. And as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, little Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube, and with the ordeal almost over, his voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. He said, Doctor, when will I die? Only then the doctor realised why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had been trembling, why, why, why he'd been nervous about agreeing to do this. He thought giving his blood meant giving up his life. And in that brief moment, he'd made a very great decision. But Johnny didn't have to die to save his sister. But each of us has a condition a lot more serious than Mary's. And it required Jesus to give not just his blood, but his whole life for us. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for sending Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Please help us to understand the significance of all of this, the seriousness of sin and the importance of that sin being dealt with. We pray that even though the, the, the world of the tabernacle of Moses' time seems so far removed from us, and even though even a Roman cross seems so far removed from us, please help us to supernaturally understand in our hearts the significance of this for what you have done to bring our salvation. Amen.